0: What the uh, the night cannot whisper away what God spoke in the light. Yeah. 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 That's going to mess me up all day. It's great to be with you this morning. Thank you to everyone who made it possible for me to be here. Uh, you have an all-star cast of characters here uh, on your leadership team as well as in your, among your congregants. Um, I've known uh, Dr. Michael Emerson for several years now, uh, known uh, Emily by distance and reputation for some time as we worked together and attended the same school, Michael, and Michael, <laughs> who's a former student of mine at Wheaton College, it's it's really great to see so many, and of course, uh, Carlton, uh, I, I told him this morning that I actually came here to hear him lead us in worship, and so always blessed by uh, how anointed uh, the brother is, and... Um, and we had him come out to the college a couple times to, to lead our students in worship. It's, it's great to be here with you. Um, it's funny because someone in the back uh, was, was saying, uh, oh, you, I knew it was you because you were wearing the same clothes that you were wearing in the, on the screen. And I was like, "I don't, what, what are you talking about? And then when they put it on, I was like, oh, I see what you mean. And this morning as I was putting my clothes on, I, I was just thinking about how tired I am of wearing this shirt not because it's old or anything, but because of how, how often black people in America get assaulted simply for being black. Yeah. Like, I wish I never had to wear this shirt. Yeah. And my heart is heavy. I, I think I slept at four in the morning just trying to process what was going on again and again and again, it just seems to never end and trying to figure out how do we press in and how do we not. And so I'm asking the Lord for strength as we spend some time together in God's word. So would you bow your heads with me in prayer? God, we come before you thankful that we can worship freely. We know that there are many people right now whose worship is obstructed all around the world. And we thank you that we can gather in this way to make a statement about your goodness, your glory, and your kingdom. And we pray that our worship would bleed out into the streets and into the world so that we don't just merely serve ourselves, but we serve our neighbors as we would like to be served and care for them as we would like to be cared for and love them as we would like to be loved. And that the world might know through our work together, through our unity and through our effort and through our sacrifice and through... Are giving, and are serving. That you are the one who sends us, empowers us, and leads our presence to be a transforming presence to the broader society. We pray, especially as uh, winds are changing and seasons are changing, yeah. Yeah. and we pray, Lord, that you would help us to get to the main thing in the midst of such change. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So if God were to ask you, do you love me, what would you say? How would you answer it? This is the question that Jesus asked Peter as he he appeared to him after the resurrection. After experiencing zero luck fishing... Someone calls out from the shore to the boat, ordering Peter and some of the other disciples to cast out their net. Then after catching a boatload of fish, Peter realized who it was. It was the resurrected Jesus. So Peter jumped out of the boat and made his way to him because it reminded him of the time that he first called him as a disciple. And then after sharing a meal, Jesus turns to Peter and it asks him, do you love me? Those of us who consider our, ourselves Christians ought to reflect on this question. If Jesus were to ask you this, what would your honest answer be? Just take a few seconds to just reflect. What would your answer be to this question? Would it be to tell him yes? Would you be able to tell him Yes. Would you say no, or would you try to search for the option like they have on Facebook that says it's complicated? You see, this question, the question of our love for God is actually the question that the passage we'll be looking at today presents to us. In Matthew 22, verses 34 to 40, we read what is known as the Great Commandment. It's referenced in three of the four gospel accounts in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and In these accounts, we see Jesus summarized the law into two primary commandments. And if you're able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Here's what the scriptures say in Matthew 22, verses 34 to 40. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Upon entering Jerusalem in what we know now as Palm Sunday... Our focus turns to Jesus' authority and identity as the long-awaited Messiah. Matthew zooms into the person and the authority of Jesus Christ, making sure that everyone who reads his account would know exactly what is at stake here. Jesus proves himself to be a threat to the religious status quo. One after another, religious leaders from different sides of the aisle, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, come after Jesus, all because they know that Jesus represents a type of change that would de-center them. There's no confusion about what's being communicated as Matthew turns up the heat on the messianic identity of Christ. Either Jesus is who he says he is, Or he isn't, and through a series of events, from Jesus' arrival into Jerusalem on a donkey to the incident where Jesus overturns the tables of those who turned the house of worship into a den of robbers by essentially pricing out the poor from being able to afford sacrificial offerings. And the moment that Jesus curses a fig tree for not bearing fruit, the authority of Jesus becomes the primary focus of our passage. So, one after another, they seek to corner Jesus by asking him questions that will get him in trouble with the crowds and with the Roman Empire. The Pharisees were up first. They asked him a question about paying taxes, which was a hot-button issue for the colonized Jewish people. And the Sadducees asked the question about marriage and the resurrection. But in their attempt to trap Jesus, they failed. Jesus masterfully responded to them, leading to their astonishment, and then them going away to to regroup and consider what he was saying. Jesus literally owned them all. But then in the next episode, he's confronted by another Pharisee described as an expert in the law who has a question that will for sure get Jesus into trouble. They knew that Jesus had answered the other two questions. They knew how he might answer this next one. And so how, they also knew how Jesus seemed to operate. So they, they kind of sent forth their Goliath to finally corner him and get him into trouble. The question, Jesus or teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? At first glance, you would think that this is an innocent question. With 613 commandments laid out in the Torah, it seems like a sincere and reasonable one. But if you take a closer look at the broader context, the the reason that this question was so controversial was that different groups emphasized different commandments and different sets of commandments. And they each believed the commands that they emphasized were the most important commands. It's, it's sort of like Christians today who, who try to separate the work of evangelism and social justice, erasing one as they emphasize the other. When theologian Rene Padilla would say that they are like two wings of a plane without which the plane cannot fly. In a similar way, this was the tension felt between the Pharisees and Sadducees. If what Jesus, didn't, if what Jesus said didn't fit neatly within one theological camp or another it would ensure that he would upset and likely incite the entire group of religious leaders or everyone altogether. But Jesus doesn't fall into that trap. Like he did with the other questions, he answers the question in a way that no one could deny. Instead of highlighting one commandment over another, he hones in on two overarching commands, both emerging from the Torah itself. The first is from Deuteronomy 6.5, which is known as the Shema, where it's written, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. The second comes from Leviticus 19.18, where it's written, Do not seek revenge or bear grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now, in both counts, he elevates the discussion beyond selecting one set of rules or regulations over another, and he prioritizes the principle of love, which could be applied into every aspect of religious and communal life. Emphasizing these two commands also binds together the love for God and love of neighbor, stating that the driving force of faith is an obedience motivated by love towards God and neighbor. Love of God and love of neighbor, then, is the primary duty of the one who obeys and follows God. It's worth noting that it is through the attempt to corner and trap Jesus that we're actually given one of the most beautiful summations and summaries of the law of God. And what the religious leader meant for evil... God brought forth good through the most concentrated and beautiful summary of God's law, love God and love neighbor, which brings us to our focus for this morning, to love God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind. And I wanted to go into love your neighbor as yourself, but because of time restraints and the fact that our attention spans are shrinking each and every day because we spend all our days on social media. Maybe you'll have me back at a future date to preach on the love of neighbor. Now it's important to note that Matthew's account states that the greatest commandment is to love God with our heart, our soul, and our mind. Mark and Luke add the word strength to the mix, which is actually the word used in the Deuteron- De- which is the word actually used in Deuteronomy. For whatever reason, Matthew switches out the word strength for mind, focusing on what takes place internally within the life of the disciple. But in all three gospel accounts, Jesus basically says, true love of God demands all of you, not just parts of you. And if you really want to love God, you must give him your entire being. In Matthew, however, it seems like the emphasis is first on what takes place, Internally within each believer. Now, in seasons of change, especially when it feels like the sands are shifting beneath your feet, that your reality is being shaken, and the winds are blowing in a different direction, it's important to step back and assess what's taking place inside inside your own person. This is especially true when things feel most tumultuous. The world is quite tumultuous, isn't it? We're facing so much in the world today. In addition to the pandemic and the economic challenges, we're living in a world where Christians seem to be the primary spreaders of conspiracy theories and promoters of white supremacy. Where Christians seem to be the ones who claim to love their neighbor and then actively work to prevent their immigrant neighbor from living in their midst and preventing them from finding security and safety among them. And where Christians seem to, one, seem to be the ones who are driven by a politically partisan idolatry more than their counterparts are. At the same time, we are living in a world where an 18-year-old writes an 180-page manifesto filled with anti-black and anti-Semitic hate drives several hours to a predominantly black neighborhood in Buffalo and kills 10 people, injuring others. This is in addition to a similar gunman who shared very similar messaging and ideologies, who targeted Latinos in El Paso just a couple years ago, killing 23 people and injuring 23 more because of a fear of some great replacement myth. Or the shooting in Charleston at... Mother Emmanuel AME Church, where nine black Christians who were attending a Bible study were killed. We live in a world where a gunman in Dallas targets Asian owned businesses and goes on shooting sprees. Or a church raised gunman in Atlanta drives an hour between two spa locations, killing eight people, six of whom were Asian women. But it's not just the problems out there that hurt. These are all in addition to the many challenges that take place within our own communities. I know that every community has its challenges and this community is not without its own, that you have experienced quite a bit of turmoil over the past few years. There's a lot of hurt, a lot of pain, some of which has been addressed, while other hurt has been so deeply buried that it needs to be brought to the surface to be healed. But I believe that help and healing, restoration, and rejuvenation is available to us all, especially as we offer or reoffer our beings unto God, for him to cure and to care for us as only he can, which is why Jesus calls us to love God and to love neighbor. Life together in a faith community requires this, even in the midst of tumultuous times. But this is what we also see taking place in our passage as well. This is the context of our passage. In fact, some of the questions posed to corner Jesus reflect the turmoil, the oppression, and the evil the Jews were facing. Yet even in the midst of Roman occupation, brutal violence against those perceived to be a threat to the Roman Empire or perceived to be a threat to the religious order, great disparities between the haves and the have-nots, and a religious system that served some but didn't serve all, the commandment that Jesus highlights is to love God and to love neighbor call is a call to love God with all their heart, soul, and mind. And in seasons of change and disruption, it's good to go back to this place. You see, in the Greek and Hebrew, the heart has always meant the central command center of your life. If you don't believe me, you can ask Armida, who's a dear friend. She'll tell you and theologize with you and correct me if I'm wrong. The heart is where motivation and movement meet. Rarely when it is mentioned throughout scripture, does the heart actually refer to the physical heart or the organ that beats inside of your chest. Instead, the heart refers to a place deep within us where our desires and our decisions collide. To love God with all your heart means to make him the object of your greatest and your deepest desires, which drive the decisions you make. In life. The soul is similar. To love God with all your soul is to love him with the whole of your personhood. It's to love him with the very breath of life within you. Your soul encompasses the whole of your personality enlivened by the breath of God, whose affections ought to be directed towards God. In other words, it's to place your identity primarily and wholly in Christ. To to live into your union with Christ. Same goes for our minds, often seen as an extension of the heart, which is where our intellectual and thinking power comes from, the place where we shift our focus from lesser things to greater things. This verse essentially tells us to submit the whole of our lives and the whole of our person to the Lord. I wonder how many of you would say that you love God in this way. I wonder if those of you here who identify as Christian and if you're not I'm glad you're here actually love him in the ways that we are called to love him my sense is that if many of you are like are probably like me that who want to love God with all my heart and my soul and my mind and my strength with the whole of my being but fall terribly short at it instead of loving God competing loves rise to the surface instead of Being enamored by God's grace, I find myself distracted by cheap and impermanent desires. This isn't surprising as the world, the devil, and the flesh seem to be implacable enemies of the soul as Thomas Aquinas described. They're constantly trying to derail our love for God and direct our love towards something else to anything else. As a result, we're constantly manufacturing and moving towards idols that demand the Position in our lives that only God deserves. John Calvin once wrote that the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. He writes Man and woman's mind, full as it is of pride and boldness, dares to imagine a God according to its own capacity. As it sluggishly plods, indeed is overwhelmed with the crassest ignorance. It conceives an unreality. And an empty appearance as God. To these evils, a new wickedness joins itself. That person tries to express in his sort, in his work, the sort of God that he has inwardly conceived. Therefore, the mind begets an idol, and the hand gives it birth. What this means is that sin disorients us in ways that lead us to disorder. Our loves. Though we want to love God, sin places detours in order to distract our hearts and souls away from God. Augustine wrote that sin has made us incurvatus in se, or curved into ourselves. Martin Luther expounded on this by writing, Our nature by the corruption of the first sin being so deeply curved in on itself that it not only bends the best gifts of God towards itself and enjoys them as is plain in the the works righteous and hypocrites, or rather even uses God himself in order to attain these gifts. But it also fails to realize that it is so wickedly, curvedly, and viciously seeks all things, even God, for its own sake. Scripture describes humanity as so curved in upon ourselves that we not only use physical but even spiritual goods for our own purposes. And in all things, seek only ourselves. What this means is that we are so sinful that we have found a way to basically make everything about us, and to turn even good things into gods in our lives. This is why Tim Keller writes that most idols are good things made ultimate. When we think of idols, we often think of the things that are tied to spiritual powers that are in direct opposition to a true and living God. Many people think of idols as inanimate objects or statues that people bow before, but the Bible describes idols far more expansively than that. Idols are anything, anything that take the place of God in our lives. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote that if we, if we ask how we are to know where our hearts are, the answer is simple. Everything which hinders us from loving God above all things and acts as a barrier between ourselves and our obedience to Jesus is our treasure And the place where our heart actually is. This means that anything can become or be an idol in our lives. The cell phone in our pockets, the clothes that we wear, how you look or how you're perceived, your job, your athletic ability, your popularity, your hopes, your dreams, and pretty much anything else can become an idol. Your friendships and your relationships can be as much an idol as fame and fortune can be. So can your desire to be married or a vision for a lifestyle to be a particular way, the need to be successful, the need to be needed, as well as your political or ideological views and commitments. Idols are anything that you elevate to the level of God. They're anything that you equate to God that's not essential to God. There anything that's considered more important to you than God? Now, I have a friend in California who's a therapist, and she shared uh, when my wife and I were visiting them after they just had a, a child, I believe. Uh, she shared, I think, how most people think of infidelity in marriage as merely engaging in inappropriate physical relations outside of the marriage covenant. She then shared a a definition of marriage or or, or infidelity that I've actually found extremely helpful and and terrifyingly convicting. She She essentially said that infidelity in marriage is simply a shift in priorities, which leads to a breach of trust. This is why this is so powerful. This means that infidelity in marriage is not limited to whether you sleep with someone you should not be sleeping with, but begin with but begin to wonder whether what, what it would be like to be with someone else. Not only that, infidelity could also mean that you place other things before your marriage, like work, your hobbies, your own personal preferences, and so on. Infidelity is simply a shift in priorities. Now, this made so much sense to me because the couples that I counsel were Marriage where their marriages run dry aren't always marriages where one spouse cheated on the other. Instead, it's a marriage where one spouse or both spouses slowly and surely prioritize other things, including good and important things, above the person they vowed to love until death do them part. To be unfaithful simply meant to means to shift your priorities to other things. To be idolatrous, then also means to shift your priorities. To other things. This is at the heart of idolatry, which is loving something else more than you love God. Idols are the things that capture your affection and your heart's attention and edge out God in the process. Again, they're anything that takes the place that rightfully belongs to God. But there are also idols beneath idols most people don't most people know that fame and fortune can be idols but, but most almost always people pursue them because of a deeper idol this is why i really like what tim keller says uh, when he writes about four primary idols that reside beneath every other idol which are power control comfort and approval these are the idols that drive us towards other idols When we don't find these things in God and receive these things from God, these are the idols that take over as we curve into ourselves. Listen to what Keller writes. Some people are strongly motivated by influence and power, while others are motivated by approval or appreciation. Some want emotional and physical comfort more than anything else. Others want security and the control of their environment. People with a deep idol of power... Don't mind being unpopular to gain influence. People who are most motivated by approval are the opposite. They'll gladly lose power and control as long as everyone thinks well of them. Each deep idol, power, approval, comfort, or control, generates a different set of fears and hopes. Surface idols are things like money, spouse, children, through which our deep idols seek fulfillment. We are often superficial in the analysis of our idol structures. For example, money can be a surface idol that serves to satisfy more foundational influences. Some people want lots of money as a way to control their world and life. And such people usually don't spend much money, and they live very modestly. They keep it all safely saved and invested so they can feel completely safe in the world others want money for access to social circles and to make themselves beautiful and attractive these people spend their money on themselves in lavish ways other people want money because it gives them so much power over others in every case money functions as an idol and yet because of various deep idols it results in very different patterns of behavior The person using money to serve a deep idol of control will often feel superior to others and use money to obtain power or social approval. In every case, however, money idolatry enslaves and distorts lives. Here's what this means this means that anything that we think we need to have, that we think we can't live without, That we absolutely must attain often emerges from a deeper drive often rooted in a desire for power control comfort or approval when things have to go a particular way it emerges from this when things have to turn out to be a particular way it emerges from this and when these things are not fulfilled and found in god himself they drive us away from god often leading us to find our fill in lesser things. C.S. Lewis said it like this, which happens to be one of of my wife's favorite quotes. Our desires are not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at a sea, we are far too easily pleased. We jump from one thing to another in hopes that if we just get enough of it, we will find fulfillment, only to realize that we are like children that stuff ourselves full of Halloween candy and find ourselves miserable and unsatiated. The more we get of the things that ultimately cannot fulfill the God-sized hole in our hearts, the emptier we seem to feel. God has made us for himself. And our ultimate fulfillment and satisfaction can only come from him. This is why Augustine wrote, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. This is what it means to... To love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. It's to place him at the center of your life and orient your life around him. It means to prioritize him above all others. It's to go all in on God and know there's nothing or no one greater than him. It's to to rest in him and to rest completely in him. At this point, it'd be natural to feel both encouraged and discouraged especially when things aren't going so well and the world seems to be falling apart. You ought to be encouraged in that you know the living God who can satisfy, fill, and fulfill your heart in ways that no one and nothing else can. But you might be discouraged in that if you're honest with yourself, you know that your love for God is not as we have heard today. If this is you, there is good news for you. You see, when Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? He knew that Peter was carrying around a a deep guilt and shame after his crucifixion. You see, right before Jesus was crucified, Jesus told Peter that he would deny him three times before the rooster crowed. Peter adamantly disagreed, saying that he would never deny Jesus. When the rooster crowed and Peter realized that he had denied Jesus and denied knowing Jesus on three separate accounts, it hit him deeply, so deeply that he wept bitterly. So when Jesus asked Peter, do you love me, three times, Jesus was actively restoring Peter from the guilt and shame that he carried from denying Jesus three times after he saying that he would never deny him. God initiated with Peter the first time they met and kept initiating with him until this point and then initiated with him again after Peter betrayed him. This is the love of God for us. I wonder if some of you relate to Peter. Some of you may have made promises to God that you would never leave him or forsake him or betray him. He made promises that he had the whole of your life but as you got older decisions were made and you have drifted away from your first love your faith is lukewarm at best and you have no idea or intention to ever truly go back you're just going through the motions others of you are living a double life you are one person in one setting and another somewhere else Your who you are on the outside is not who you are on the inside Still others of you are wanting to want God, but you just can't seem to muster up the love that seems to be required of you. You know you should love God, but it doesn't seem to be there. You want to be a Christian or to grow in your faith, but it seems like you're spinning your tires in the mud, stuck and incapable of going deep with God. Now if any of these sound familiar to you, here's the good news. As we see in the case of Peter, it's God who is constantly in pursuit of us. His love for Peter transformed Peter's life in a way that cemented Peter's love for him. In the same way, it's it's the love of God that is the source of our love for him. God's love generates our love for him. It's God's love that led Peter to boldly declare that he would follow Jesus to the grave. And God's love that after Peter betrayed and denied Jesus... Three times that would actually lead Peter to love him to the point that he would be crucified upside down for his faith in Christ. We can only love God because he first loved us. Our love for God rests upon his love for us. And though we would like to believe that we love God on our own accord and on our own strength, it's it's only because of God's love for us that we're able to love him at all. The reason we love God it's because God Himself loves us. Our love for Him is only and in always a response to His love for us. Dr. Evie Hill was the longtime pastor of Mount Zion Missionary Baptist Church in Los Angeles and one of the most prominent preachers in his day. When Dr. Hill was a young man, he married a young lady from a very aristocratic family named Jane Edna Caruthers. By his own account, her willingness to marry him raised many eyebrows. Kind of like when people see me and my wife together, they're like, How did you marry her? <laughs> she came from everything, he grew up in poverty. A few months into the marriage, E.V. Hill convinced his wife that they should buy a gas station. Jane warned him that he didn't have the knowledge or the time to run the business and that they would eventually lose everything. Time proved her right. The day eventually came for him to tell her that he had lost the business and their investment in it, leading to a deep, deep shame within him. After taking in the news... She responded in an unexpected way saying, you know, I've been doing some figuring out. I figured that you don't, smil- you don't smoke or drink. I figured if you'd been a smoker or a drinker we would have lost that much money anyway, so I figure it's six of one or half a dozen of the other. Let's just forget about it and move on. With those words, he knew that she was saying, I love you and I still believe in you. We'll get through this together. A few weeks later, Evie Hill came home to discover that Jane had prepared a lovely candlelight dinner. Thinking that this would be a romantic evening together, he made a humorous remark as he went into the bathroom to wash up. And when he flipped on the light switch, nothing happened. He wondered if the the, 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 the switch went off. So he went to the bedroom and to change and when he switched on the light there, nothing happened again. No light there either. And he realized, that wh- he realized why she had put the candle out. When he sat down on the table, she started crying. And then she said, I know you've been working hard, but we didn't have any money. And I didn't want any burden to add any burden to you. But because we didn't have any money to pay the electric bill, they turned off the electricity. So I thought we'd just have a nice candlelight dinner instead tonight. Reflecting on her response at the funeral, at her funeral, Evie Hill said that the man he became and any success he achieved was a, in large part a result of her love for him. He said, she could have broken me. She could have said she's never been in a situation like the one I put her in and how I failed her. She could have rubbed it in my face, but she didn't. Instead, she said, let's eat by candlelight, which assured him of her love for him and of her commitment to him and her continued belief in him. In the ways that Dr. Hill's wife Jane met him in his failure. So too does God meet us. But instead of inviting us merely to dine with him by candlelight, God illuminated his love for us by sending us the light of the world. And through the life, death, and resurrection of his son Jesus, and the ensuing kingdom to come, he demonstrates to us his initiating and sustaining love for us. You can love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, because he first loved you. This is good news for you and me to hold on to today, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us so that we might live in eternity with him forever. Amen.